Welcome to Church in the North, a podcast by ministry leaders and for ministry leaders. I'm your host, Rob Chartrand, Program Coordinator for Christian Ministry at Briarcrest College. And I'm joined by my co-host, Jeff Dresser, Assistant Professor of Worship Arts. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Rob. And Dan Goddard, Lead Pastor of Victory Church in Moose Jaw. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Rob and Jeff. Hey, it's good to be with you guys this morning here in Cairnport, Saskatchewan. Um, you know, by the time this podcast airs, we will have officially been in the season of Advent. We'll be past our first Sunday of Advent. And uh, I'm curious with you guys, what's the rule that you have around uh, around your place uh, regarding Christmas decorations? Um, is there a good time to set it up, a bad time? Do you guys have like a set date for your family? How about you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, in my mind, December is the is is free game so okay. the sooner the better once december starts but we usually have a million things on the go and it kind of drags and drags until we're like halfway through december and we're like we gotta get this going totally so, yeah. yeah that's the pastor's life like you, you the church building's decorated but not your house yeah exactly <laughs> how about you how about you jeff well for, for us the um the purchase of the christmas tree is an event oh so, you buy like okay. a real one yeah, yeah so usually it goes around the uh, the purchase of the Christmas tree and usually and so since we're empty nesters, that uh, is not as much of an event. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But we used to in Ottawa. We used to go to a, there was a family at our church that had a Christmas tree farm, and there'd be like sleigh rides and hot chocolate around the campfire. So that was the we would sort of organize that around all the various sports activities and hockey tournaments hmm. and hmm. things, and then uh, give the tree a day to rest. Oh, you have rest, and okay. uh, and then we would decorate the next day. Oh, wow! You got to give it a day to rest to, to you let it, give it to, because let it, it's, like it's wrapped up. All, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, okay. Um, for those of you <laughs> listening, you can't see that I was demonstrating with my arms. Yeah. Uh, that the bow. I thought of the you were worshiping. Okay. To, uh, yeah. Well, really, you know, if it ain't sin, it's worship. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, Christmas tree farm. What is that? I mean, like for for people in Saskatchewan, uh, <laughs> is there a place around here where you can go and, and get a Christmas tree on a farm? You know, we we when we moved out to Winnipeg from Ottawa, we looked for a Christmas tree farm, yeah. and we did not quite find the uh, what we were looking for because this was. Um, uh, I mean, the place was all decorated, and they had sleigh rides, and it was an event to go out right. and select totally. your yeah. your tree and chop it down and toss it on the wagon, and the horses would bring it back and yeah. uh, to your car and tie it up. It feels but, like uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or something like that. Yeah, yeah, not not that I would have ever seen a movie. No, uh, of like course that, not. Of course uh, not. No, no, no. Um, do you use a real tree or an artificial tree, Dan? We use an artificial tree. Okay. Yeah. 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 I don't. We haven't used very many real trees over yeah. the years. A few, but yeah, I I I went artificial for the first two years of my marriage way back in the day, and I just couldn't find a tree stand that would really keep the thing up. And yeah. and not only that, like it it was always leaning, and, and I was letting it settle, Jeff. I was letting it settle, but it never it worked. <laughs> but I was losing my sanctification. So after two years of Christmas tree uh, angst, I said never again. And we bought this artificial tree and. It looks amazing, and it's thirty years old. Yeah, yeah, and I've never, I've never looked back. Easy to set up. I, I mean, I actually appreciate the imperfection of, uh, yeah, of real trees. But we, and we also have a. Uh, um, the boys all understand that uh, we just need to wait for mom to pick the tree, <laughs> and, and like nothing matters. Uh, just, just let 
mom pick the tree that she wants and uh and when you get it home it's there's going to be a part that you have to hide in the corner but that's just uh that's part of the game but if you had a you got to turn it tree, right i'm telling you you would appreciate the that's right perfection of, yeah, of that yeah. as well so well and you can make an a fake like you can imperfect it like in, you imp- can yeah like, yeah, like you just break like, off a branch yeah like a statue of david you know there's a slight <laughs> imperfection in that greek art just to make it just right you know but um it's not charlie brown tree that's for sure what do you do about uh, outside Christmas lights? Do you guys hang up outside Christmas lights around your house? We don't. I wish we did. I, mm. I think they're great, but uh, we just haven't taken the time and energy. You know what? Honestly, for me, it's the cold. <laughs> I just hate going outside. You don't want to be climbing a ladder when it's 30 below? <laughs> for me, it's the ladder. I, I am strongly okay. anti-ladder. So right. uh, unless it's a matter of like life and death, I'm not getting up on a ladder. So many stories of middle-aged men falling off of ladders. Yeah, yeah I keep hearing you can pay someone else to do that, but I've never looked into it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, um and they were in Mushta, you can find yeah, somebody? like a company, right? really. It just goes and does lights, you know. And they, wow, yeah. 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 Well, you know, t- that's as bad as buying an artificial tree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but the problem isn't just putting up the lights; it's taking down the lights. Like I could put them up, but then you're like, in the middle. When do you take them down? Do you take them down right after Christmas? Do you take them down in the springtime? You know. So I bought a house like in Edmonton, and it came with lights. The guy never took the lights down, and I'm like, and it's like. On the second story, there were lights on, like the 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 roof apex and all of that. And then, so I'm like, I'm not getting them yeah. and taking these down. So I just left them up. Yeah. Um, but that's not cool either. For, they're little lights, so they're kind of hidden. But right. I mean, do you, you know, are there rules around that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mysteries, <laughs> mysteries abound. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, um, our theme for this week's podcast is evangelism, hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm I'll tell, talk about our guest speaker in a moment. But um, what? I want to talk a bit about pastors and personal evangelism. Do you guys think it's easier or harder for pastors to do personal evangelism? And by that, I don't mean pulpit evangelism, like preaching from the pulpit. I don't mean program evangelism, like things like Alpha. And I don't mean like drop-in evangelism, like where people drop in and want to know about Jesus and you share Jesus with them. I I mean personal lifestyle evangelism with friends, neighbors, etc. Harder or easier for pastors to do that sort of thing? What do you think, Jeff? Uh, I think yes. Um, <laughs> and here I, I will expand on that answer. So, so for the, the first 10 years of my working life, I, I was not a pastor. I was a software developer. And so it was easier when I wasn't a pastor because mm-hmm. all day, every day, I was, I was in my mission field. And, um, but it was, it was harder to, to bring up or, or to start a spiritual conversation. Uh, but people who got to know me knew that I went to church, knew that right. I was a Christian. And my openings often would be, uh, what are your plans for the weekend? Or what, what did you do this weekend? So I would always mention church. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but then when I found, when, when I got into ministry, uh, the question you get usually early on when you meet somebody right. is, what do you do for work? Yeah, yeah. Um, the challenge there was that, you know, how do I, you know, if I'm just in the church all day, I wasn't uh, I wasn't around uh, non-Christians. Right. Um, so I, we found that our kids' sports activities were the... Uh, were the best opportunity where we would where we would get to really know uh, people and the, you know the parents of the of the other team members. So that would be an opportunity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone knew that that I was the weird religious guy that we were the weird <laughs> religious family. So so we could uh, 
you know, those conversations would start more naturally you know, yeah. when yeah. I'd already become a pastor. Hmm. Okay. How about you, Dan? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I concur with what Jeff was saying. I, I think as a pastor, once people find out what you do, mm-hmm. there is a natural uh, thing that says, wow, well, you would probably want to tell me about your faith, wouldn't you? So that it, it's not quite as big of a, a leap or yeah. an offensive thing, maybe, in culture. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, so what, what makes it difficult for pastors, you know, because uh, I, I think it's important, right, mm-hmm. um, is I think a lot of times pastors have a lot of important things, you know, right. oh, yeah. you better take care of your family too. That's difficult as mm-hmm. a pastor. So make sure you're prioritizing your family. And oh, you better make sure your own walk with God is strong and do, you're doing devotions and yeah. oh, you better make sure. And so pastors tend to start to get overwhelmed with all the, make sure you're doing this and this yeah. and this. Yeah, and yeah. then evangelism has this sense of it's it's in another world, right? What yeah. I'm doing all day, every day and the people I'm around and the, the natural relationships of my life are all with uh, other Christians. So then finding contexts for it on top of all the other things I'm supposed to right. make sure I'm doing, yeah. uh, can definitely be uh, a lot for a pastor and overwhelming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I just found it so difficult because people do ask what you're what do you do for a living? And then there's almost like, sometimes it seems like there's just subtle expectations like, oh, you're going to try and proselytize me. Right. Right. In the relationship. And so it's like a a barrier early in the relationship, but then later on in the relationship, it's not like it takes a little bit of time to get past that for, for some people. Um, so yeah, it is harder, but it's, if you continue in relationship and then they, they realize, oh, right. you're just going to love me for who I am and you're just going to be my friend no matter what, which is the way it should be, yeah. um, then I don't think it's a challenge. And then later on, they questions come up. Why are you a pastor? Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to this place? For sure. As you're um, getting to know somebody, you share the important parts of your life. That's so, right. Yeah. And I and I just tell them, I, I came out of my mother's womb with a Bible in my hand and I was preaching <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. just from the day I was born. <laughs> life of a pastor. <laughs> Which right is there. so not true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so, so what you're saying then is um, evangelism for a pastor is not optional? It's, it's not optional for any believer, any disciple, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but pastors should be ministers of the gospel, yeah. not by virtue of their occupation, but by virtue of their following of Jesus, right? So yeah. all, all, uh, praying for people mm-hmm. uh, is something a pastor does, not because they're a pastor, but because they're a believer. Yeah. And serving people and, and certainly sharing our faith. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. We, we're essentially doing most of the things that are... Uh, a believer should do, um, but, but we get paid <laughs> and we're more accountable <laughs> There you go, <laughs> because we're supposed to exemplify it. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I hear you, Dan, like it's, you're, things are so busy sometimes and there's so many things you could be doing, right. um, that it's one of those things that kind of gets put aside in a, in a pastor's walk, um, because of, all these other important matters that are that are so in your face all the time. For sure. So we'd have to be intentional about it. And then I, I think having peers, you know, other staff members or friends who are also challenging us in that. And, hey, where are you finding context yeah. uh, to, to hang around with people who are unbelievers, right, is, yeah. uh, is very important. And, and when people are bugging you about that regularly, you, you know, you start to look for those and find those. It might take you some time, but, yeah. but there are some. Yeah. Mm. You find it challenging to um, encourage the people of God to do evangelism in our day and age? Yes, 100%. I, I would say, um, yeah, this is a neglected thing. So that that's part of my hesitancy of saying it's hard for pastors. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, uh, welcome to 
evangelicalism in Canada. Like it's, uh, yeah. you know, everyone is challenged with the thought that, wow, I'm supposed to do this. You know, I, mm-hmm. I kind of thought it was the person, you know, in the row behind me or right, in front of me. Right, right. Well, I guess it's always been challenging um, yeah. to to tell people about the good news of Christ, which requires a surrendered life, right? <laughs> right? Um, but there are probably some particular things about our current cultural moment that make it more challenging. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. we've gotten more sophisticated in our excuses for not oh. doing evangelism. Ooh, uh, detail. Well, because we've, um, you know, sort of the, you know, going door to door is is frowned upon, is not, not effective, you know, handing out tracts, some of these sort of more Classic. traditional, yeah, evangelical mm-hmm. ways of evangelism are are now thought to be ineffective, and um, and they probably are. And but then this sort of lifestyle evangelism is it's easy to say, well, I just you know hung out with my neighbors, so that's I'm doing lifestyle evangelism, and uh, just coming alongside people, and, and you can never, you know, you you never bring up um, the gospel or start a spiritual conversation. And yet you can kid yourself into thinking that, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with, right. uh, with non-believers, so therefore I'm, I'm checking off that uh, evangelism box. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can get to that spot um, because, I mean, if you live in the world, you're working in the world, you're, you know, you're playing sports with people in the world or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It, that part is easy. It's, it's how do people get to the point where they can actually share their faith? And that's, that, that's the biggest challenge, I think, that a lot of people have. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a course this next semester here at Briarcrest, Evangelism and Discipleship. And mm. half of that course is just going to be about how to share your faith. Because what, what the research demonstrates is the reason why a lot of people don't share their faith isn't because necessarily of courage or isn't necessarily because of want, but it's actually because of the skill set. They don't actually have right. the competency. And sure. if you can help them with the competency, that's going to help with the courage and it's going to help with you know their their willingness and desire to do it more. So yep. that's actually one of the biggest obstacles people face is they don't know how to get to that moment of just yep. sharing their faith or partnering with the Holy Spirit in that process. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think for my own life, I, I uh, one of the ways I sort of evaluate uh, how am I doing, mm-hmm. you know, or, or do I need to become more intentional is I ask myself the question, do I have or who do I have right now that I'm praying for, yeah. for their salvation, yeah. you know, yeah. can I name them easily, right? And, you know, if I have three people I can easily name, um, then then I'm I'm living in the context of, you know, that I'm, I'm praying for these people and right. I'm around them and uh, looking for opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. But if I, if uh, there's some seasons of my life where I try to name three people and I'm at zero, hmm. right? And then hmm. I go, wow, yeah. I better get intentional about yeah. making this a reality. Yeah. And that, that changes your posture too. If you're praying for people, then as you step into the day, Absolutely. that changes your posture because then you're, you're anticipating those God moments and what God's going to do um, in your life. But if you're not praying, well, that certainly yeah. is a tell. Yeah. Out of prayer, out of mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this week, uh, we're, our guest is Bill Hogg, and uh, he's the National Director of Missions Canada, and he's the lead for Advance Canada, who are two very mission-focused evangelistic agencies. And uh, we're going to be talking about catalyzing evangelism in local churches and raising up evangelists across the country. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Mm. So looking forward to that. Hey, guys, thanks for joining uh, me this morning in the studio and uh, looking forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Thank Jane. you.
Bill Hogg, welcome to the Church in the North podcast. Thanks, Rob. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, we've introduced uh, Bill in the pre-show, but uh, just to recap, he's the National Director of Message Canada, and he's uh, the lead for Advance Canada and probably another number of extraordinary titles uh, behind his name of organizations he leads, like lawn bowling clubs. Is that correct, Bill? As well as Guardian and High Protector of Scotland. I've got that <laughs> on the business card as well. You know, carrying the torch that William Wallace dropped when he was executed and dismembered by the English. I, I, well, hey, let's, let, let's introduce our, our uh, audience to you. Um, and uh, let's start with your ministry background. G- can you give us just like a real general topography of your ministry journey? Obviously, you were not born in Canada, um, but how did you end up uh, through ministry to your current role with Message Canada? Well, see how brief and succinct I can be. Uh, there, there's a challenge for an evangelist. But as, uh, as a young Scottish boy, uh, I bounced in and out of the United States of America like a yo-yo because my dad worked for IBM, which I thought stood for I'd been moved. But actually, international business machines. So it's kind of like being a military brat. You're in and out. And in one of those uh, boondoggles in the United States, I encountered Jesus at a camp and uh, followed Jesus, drifted away from Christ till my final year of high school, where I had got into the duplicitous fog of being a religious hypocrite who would check into church weekly, but didn't live for Jesus, didn't follow Jesus. Mm. And I know the Lord is limitless in his patience and kindness. but it was almost like he was saying, okay, are you in or are you out? You know, quit messing around. And I had this intuitive sense if I surrendered fully to Jesus, he would call me into ministry, ill-defined at the time. I did surrender to Christ and had a more radical encounter than my 12-year-old encounter with Jesus in the woods mm. of northern Minnesota. And off the back of that, began to share Christ and became an obnoxious boy preacher, you know, <laughs> in my teens and uh, preached in our local church. And people didn't have good spiritual categories for what was going on here, but they were saying stuff like, this is what you should do with the rest of your life. Mm. I had a, an amazing encounter with the Holy Spirit when I was an engineering student and that propelled me into an awareness that God had called me to be an evangelist. So I pioneered Youth for Christ in Scotland and then moved to the U.S. and served a large church in the Pacific Northwest as their youth pastor, then returned to Youth for Christ as an evangelist at large. So I used to say, Rob, I'm like Tommy Lasorda. Like baseball fans will still remember and cherish Tommy Lasorda, who said, if you cut me, I'll I'll bleed Dodger Blue. I used to say, cut me, I'll I'll bleed Youth for Christ. So Youth for Christ was Mm. precious to me uh, because it was formative uh, in my emerging ministry as an evangelist. I've also pastored churches, uh, which is fun and painful and challenging all at the mm-hmm. same time because I have a conviction that the local church is not the hope of the world. Jesus is that we know <laughs> that wrong. You know, yeah. lift Jesus high. The bullseye is a life-giving Christology and an exist 
existentially centered life on Jesus, not the church. But the church should be defined by mission as a participant in the mission of God. And my dream uh, and was always that the local church would be defined by a culture of evangelism. Um, mm. So I've also been an adjunct prof, uh, teaching mission, evangelism, youth ministry from a missiological paradigm as an adjunct prof at Seattle Pacific University. I said, what if we reframed youth ministry instead of placing it under adult education, but we saw it as a missiological discipline? So, so that's been my bias for some time. Mm. Uh, laterally, I was the national missiologist for a Canadian church planting network, which worked with 31 evangelical denominations across Canada in various depths of partnership. But I think that was that was a great gift to be a convener of bringing the people of God together uh, around the mission of Jesus and the planting of churches. Mm -hmm. And then on August the 1st, 2019, I became the first national director of Message Canada. So that's a bit of a, a flyover, lots of years, lots of blessing, grief, pain, joy, fruitfulness, uh, desolation and consolation along the way. Yeah, well done. Well done. That's succinct. Uh, you and I uh, connected and uh, worked together uh, when you were doing your stint with C2C Network. I mean, that's when we first uh, got to know each other. And, and then, of course, we've partnered on some other endeavors uh, since then. So just for our listeners to know, uh, if Bill and I sound uh, very comfortable with each other, uh, <laughs> It's because we've put in the time. Uh, so why don't you tell us about Message Canada? Uh, what What is your mission? What, and and maybe flesh it out a little bit, boots on the ground. What's the What do the practical outworkings of that mission look like? Great question, Rob. And yeah, we, we are at ease because, because we're friends and, and mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed connecting with you when you were a church planter because you were one of the few church planters who viewed the whole enterprise missiologically. Uh, and I think every church planter should be a missiologist mm -hmm. and be yeah. a captain to move the church on mission. Just as James Denny said, all our evangelists should be theologians and all our theologians should be evangelists, yeah. you know. All, all our yeah. planets should be missiologists. But regarding Message Canada, we're part of a global movement. Message Trust was founded by a level five leader, an apostolic evangelist, Andy Hawthorne, OBE. So mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, but apostolic. In my lexicon, those are two different things. Uh, a businessman who started part-time doing schools evangelism, and then it's morphed into a holistic missional enterprise that's seen community transformation, seen gobs of prisoners encounter Christ, loads of young people hear and respond to the good news of Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a joy to be part of that global movement with expressions where they were very Manchester-centric, you know, committed okay. to Manchester, but mm -hmm. then it's morphed into the home countries of Scotland, Wales, and England. South Africa, Germany, the Netherlands, Brazil, and here in Canada. Mm. So, so we're a new kid on the block in Canadian terms. We're about six years old, and, and I became the national director on August 1, 2019. And yeah. we're committed to fanning the flames of evangelism. 
Uh, we're mm. committed to serving and supporting the body of Christ in the evangelization of Canada. And I would say also sharing and showing the love of Jesus in words and deeds with the hardest to reach young people and also adults in some of our communities pockmarked by poverty and deprivation. Mm. So it's our joy not simply to, to speak the gospel, which we must do, preach the gospel all the time and use words because faith comes by hearing and hearing by mm -hmm. the word of Christ, but also to per pursue community transformation and to serve the church. And we're doing this through Advance, which I know we'll talk about, and Eden. Now, Eden are teams. We don't need rugged individualistic heroes or brave couples. We need teams of people who live in mm -hmm. gospel community in places of deprivation to pursue community transformation in Jesus' name and to bless and elevate the poor. The Eden name comes from the prophetic word of Ezekiel, the city that has been laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And there's wild proof of concept in the United Kingdom where now about 80 Eden teams have been deployed across 25 years, therefore deploying over a thousand urban missionaries in communities defined by being in the bottom 10% of the social indices in the United Kingdom. And they've yeah. seen measurable community transformation using the lens of asset-based community development. Now, how so? When people relocate or rise up from within or return to a community pockmarked by poor housing, crime, addiction, dysfunctional, wobbly families, isolation, and they live in gospel community and they follow the spirit with intentionality and they serve their neighbors and love their neighbors and roam the neighborhood, asking the spirit what he's up to. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Uh, the community will be changed by the power of the gospel. Isolation will recede. Addiction will decline. And all these things are are measurable through the power of the gospel. Yeah. So the, the gospel can seep into a broken community. So that so that's Eden. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could talk talk about Eden in Canada. And then advance. Advance is about activating evangelism. So one of our great missional malaises in Canada is the suffocation, incarceration, suppression of the evangelist. Mm. We need to reclaim the evangelist. Our friend Brent Trask says, if you look at the crown of King Jesus in Canada, there's a missing jewel. Mm. And that's the yeah. evangelist, if you think of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Yeah. So we can, we can wax eloquent about that and happy to deep dive into that. At the same time, we need to support leaders who are stirred to do the work of the evangelist. There's no silver bullet for reclaiming the mission of God and seeing days of gospel glory in Canada. There, there's no silver yeah. bullet. Yeah. We need the ev evangelist for a variety of reasons that it can unpack, but we need to support leaders who say, I'm not an evangelist, but I want to see lost people encounter Jesus. I want to see our people energized to share yeah. the gospel. Uh, and so it advances about that, helping support churches, create cultures of evangelism and to embolden and inspire everyday Christians to bear witness for Christ. Uh, and yes. that started nine years ago with a group of 12 evangelists huddling in a warehouse in Manchester. 
And it's now become a global movement where there's mm. maybe 15,000 advanced groups, which are cohorts who meet for mutual sharpening and evangelism in 93 nations across the planet. So, you know, globally, God is up to something. He is elevating the evangelist for the advancement of the gospel. The Spirit of God is fanning the flames of evangelism. And there is actually, in this Kairos moment, an unprecedented harvest but we're in the nuclear winter of pre-Christian, post-Christian Canada. So, yeah. so we're not seeing all that. So we need to cry out to the Lord, Lord, in your mercy and kindness, might we not see a new day by your grace and by your power and by your spirit? Yeah. Amen. So you're, you're you know, to just to, to summarize it succinctly, I mean, you, you Message Canada is the banner organization, it's the overarching uh, body, and you have two significant arms. One is Eden, the other is Advance. Advance is about you know, empowering, raising up training of evangelists. Eden is, is actually much more urban evangelists doing work and you're working with them as well. We, you know, I want to get deep on those, but is that basically the general framework? That's the general framework. And there's a yeah. biblical, like I'm a bit of a Bible snob. My wife and I describe ourselves as Bible snobs. So, <laughs> so there is a, a biblical definition of the office of the evangelist, but advance would be, uh, we do have a work. Who, who's active in evangelism? Let's name them yeah. an evangelist, right? Yeah. They might not be a biggie, but they're an evangelist. And then in 2024, we're going to roll out creative mission, which is a mashup of the creative arts. It might be okay. dance music, videography, spoken word with gospel proclamation as a means of mentoring and mobilizing young people and young adults on mission to reach their lost peers. But right now, we've got these two missional arms, so you've summed it up very well, Rob. Yeah. So let's talk about Eden uh, for a bit here. Um, you know, Eden, you're, you're, you're raising up leaders whose job is to f form a team in a broken postal code and to do mission um, in whatever form that is, contextualizing the gospel, understanding what's God already doing in the neighborhood, what could God be doing, and then partnering with the Holy Spirit in His in His work in in this broken part of the city. How, is is it is it similar to move in, or is it different than move in? How how would you make the difference? Because I think some of our listeners might be familiar with move in Canada. Um, it, it from a distance, you go phenomenologically, maybe it's very similar, but actually they're very different. Yeah. So there, there is a move-in dynamic. You know, you could talk about relocators, returners, and those who are redeemed and rise up from within a broken community. So Eden teams would not be defined singularly by relocation, namely moving in. I mean, okay. they get the there's an incarnational impulse as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. But I, I would think there's Eden teams must be gospel-centered. The gospel must be front and centered. And then there's an ecclesio ecclesiological distinctive where right. we will always partner in, with, and through the local church. Always, always, always. Even if, as in Prince George, the Eden teams are catalyzing microchurch uh, kickstarts. So yeah. the goal is we've got two Eden teams that we're looking to actually merge into one Eden team uh, who are in low-income apartments. And so why not combine forces to be on mission and then catalyze microchurch in your respective apartment complexes? So, I mean, yeah. back when I was with C2C, one of my 
first ever field trips was to Tirana. And I went to Thorncliffe Park. It's Toronto. Anyway, Toronto. keep going. Toronto. <laughs> uh, and went to Thorncliffe Park uh, and hung out with the move-in people there and was so refreshed by the very evident commitment to the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And was keen that, on them because they were doing stuff like door-to-door evangelism in low-income high-rise apartments. Mm. I'll talk for you. And uh, having an impact amongst uh, new Canadian immigrants. Uh, but the thing that surprised me was that the young adults there who are living in community, the young men in relationships of spiritual and holiness accountability, the commitment to prayer, uh, the commitment to think about unreached urban poor were scattered into different churches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the big, huge difference would be Eden, you know, not just, you know, there's a pragmatism around that. So if you've got, I love the idea of the body of Christ coming together in partnership in the gospel, but if you've yeah. got an Eden team of eight or nine men and women, and they're from three or four churches, you've just got the, you've got the pragmatics of how do you, sync up the calendar if you're in a community yeah. group in a worship event and, and this, that, and the other thing. But I think it's more than pragmatics. I think it's our understanding that an Eden team leader, even if they're a fully funded missionary, is a staff person in a local church under the authority of the local church and their line manager would be from within the local church. And we would be, if I'm there, I'd be Uncle Bill in the room or Heath, our Eden mobilizer, or Paul, our director of ops and training, would be there as a mentor uh, to pour into them and equip them. So I think there's, there's a, you know, that would be a significant difference. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Is one, is one of the other differences, though, I mean, is that your Eden teams and their work um, can often culminate in gospel enterprise, in the development of some sort of a tangible expression of the gospel that serves the community? That that's true. It's it's not a prescription. It's not a prescription. So yeah, there's yeah. a, a six year old Eden team out of Coastal Church in Vancouver, and under the leadership of Dave and Cheryl Coop, Coastal Church, uh, their motto and mantra, which I know would make Ray Backy smile from heaven, is <laughs> Coastal Church helps make the city a better place. So there's a a love and a heart for the city, yeah. and. They've got a an Eden team under the leadership of Fari and Angela Magami, and yeah. they run uh, a cafe as a vehicle of Christ-centered social enterprise. But that takes a lot of leadership moxie. It takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of yeah. energy. And so, you know, I'd be thrilled if there were Eden teams in every deprived community in Canada, with or without social enterprise. So, so there can be a marriage yeah. in the United Kingdom. There's a significant marriage made in heaven between an Eden team and a community grocer, you know, which yeah. we're looking at. But it's a it's a slow, uh, low and slow story in Canada regarding the community grocer. But the community grocer is a Jesus centered. Uh, approach to food insecurity so it, yeah. it's, it's not a food bank where the yeah. idea is to expedite a package to your patron and it's not a supermarket where the customer is sovereign but it's again in the local church addresses food insecurity in jesus name so there's word and deed and there's wraparound care and there you know there, there's a marriage made in heaven but it's not 
it's not required. I think one of our challenges, Rob, is we come into a community with our preconceived ideas, with the That's programs right. that worked in Lethbridge, Alberta, and they won't work in Prince George. But hey, that was such a great program, and we, we think so programmatically, but we actually need to be fluid, adaptive, contextually yeah. nimble, and discern what God's doing, and actually do the grunt work of community assessment to identify yeah. what are the real needs that should be addressed in Jesus' name. Yeah, and live in the community, move into the community. Yeah. Feel the gospel rhythms of the community, um, you know, partner with the Holy Spirit in his work that he's doing. Yeah, all of that is necessary before we jump to solutions, which we love to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if anyone's read the book, When Helping Hurts, I think it's uh, it's a good reminder to all of us is that sometimes in our enthusiasm, we can do more damage in the name of Jesus than help in the name of Jesus if we haven't done the groundwork. And so, you know, we love quick solutions, but sometimes we have to wait on that and just listen and trust and yeah, yeah, Yeah. with great humility. So let's talk about advance. Uh, I mean, you're all about catalyzing and cultivating evangelism. So why do do you think we're not seeing this evangelistic pulse in our churches today? That's a great question. Uh, And, you know, and it's sobering. We're not seen an evangelistic mm-hmm. pulse in most of our churches. If there's an evangelistically fruitful, vigorous church led by someone with palpable passion for the gospel and Jesus' Luke nineteen ten mission where he says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, the church is an anomaly and the leader is an outlier. So mm-hmm. it, it is an issue. And we, yeah. we, we should sit in that and let it unnerve us let it sit on us with weight. You know, it's it's not okay. Max Dupree says the first job of a leader is to define reality. And the mm-hmm. reality is is not good. The reality yeah. is 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 bad news. So a leader yeah. with evangelistic zeal and evangelistic intentionality is rare. You're more likely to be the manager of a store providing religious goods and services but you've asked the why question and and i think there there's a very basic issue and mm-hmm. and, and there's a cluster of issues around that is you can't have a culture of evangelism or a church defined by evangelistic heat and sizzle and evangelistic fruit if the culture is not permeated with the gospel so there's the challenge of are our churches defined by gospel culture? You know, Newbegin said the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women that believe the gospel yeah. and, and live by the gospel. And then prior to that, is there gospel clarity in the communication? So in our deconstructionist mode, you know, we downplay the power of oratory, instruction, teaching, declaration kerygma but there's mm-hmm. not much faithful kerygma across canada yeah. yeah so the gospel's the power of god so if we are not centered on jesus and shaped by the gospel there is no transformative power there's a real weird amazing mystery that god's redeeming saving delivering forgiving healing power is released through the declaration of the gospel and yeah. when I was 
uh, assessing church planters in team, not the singular Yoda in the room, but with a team of, of seasoned leaders, one of the startling issues was the lack of gloss, gospel clarity. Yeah. So, you know, so it's, there's a pandemic of gospel fuzziness. So what do we get? Depending on what tribe you're in or what end of the theological spectrum, you'll get a theological lecture. You'll get, you know, an exegetical display that demonstrates how long the vicar has spent at the sacred desk before they walk up <laughs> the bias. Or you'll get your best life now, or you'll get moralism, yeah, and legalism, yeah. Uh, and we don't get Jesus-centered, Jesus-exalting, Jesus is strong, mighty to save, presently active communication. So, yeah. so if we're not getting the gospel in the household of faith. It's the gospel that ignites missional impulse. And, and I used to talk about being gospel-centered because the network I was part of was gospel, yeah. claimed to be gospel-centered, spirit-led, mission-focused. I've changed yeah. my language if I'm if more careful and parse what I'm saying to say we need to be Jesus-centered. We yeah. need to be existentially centered and surrendered to Jesus, the Lord, the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of the nations, the Lord of the church, and shaped by the gospel. And, and I'm just, I kind of end up becoming Simon Cowell in an assessment center or in an auditorium with my arms folded. I don't wear V-neck T-shirts because that would be uncomely with a man <laughs> of my physique. But I, I do get twitchy because I'm just hearing a lot of moralism and obligation. The gospel is not a demand. The gospel is a promise. And maybe we need to wallpaper the yeah. book of Galatians in many of our sanctuaries and auditoriums to get us out the starting blocks of mission. Because if we've got no Jesus-centered message, if we've lost sight of the gospel, which Paul says is of first importance, and he's not advocating a reductionist, tidy, neat, freeze-dried gospel, because he says, let me remind you of that which is of first importance. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried on the and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So there's this whole sweep, I think, that Paul is pointing to of yeah. God's redemptive action in history, creation and fall, yeah. redemption, the restoration of all things. And and this is one of you know one of my sorrows of of the loss of Tim Keller. Tim Keller yeah. was a ninja and a savant at bringing you to Jesus. And and that's what we need to be about, brothers and yeah. sisters. We need to be about the business of, of bringing people to Jesus. I mean, I remember hearing Keller at Lausanne 3 in Cape Town 2010, and they gave him 15 minutes. So he flies <laughs> from Manhattan to Cape Town. They give him 15 minutes to speak on a, a theology of the city. And, and he has six points which he delivers. Mm. less than 15 minutes because he lands on that bartering session between Abraham and God, where yeah. Abraham's pleading, don't obliterate the city. You know, if there's 50 righteous, would you, would you, you know, don't obliterate the city? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? And, and there's this weird exchange going on yeah. uh, between Abraham and Yahweh. Uh, 
And Keller asks the question, we're all wondering, what is going on between Abraham and God? Yeah. He said, Abraham is acting as a priest for the city. Every priest needs a city. And we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. And you go, booyah! You know, yeah. he, he brings you to Jesus. His wife, Kathy, said she loved to hear uh, Tim preach because he would bring you to Jesus. And that's the beauty of Alan Hirsch. Like my wife, Morag, says, you know, I could listen to Alan Hirsch every day. You know, yeah. and we answered the question at the same time as married couples sometimes do or should do. And we said, yeah. why? Because he always brings you to Jesus. So we're not bringing people to Jesus. And we've got guilty Christians. We've got unregenerate professors in our, and I don't mean that, academia. I mean, those who profess faith <laughs> have not experienced the regenerating power of the Spirit because God will not endorse, yeah. authenticate, or empower a message that is not the good news of Jesus. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important that when you know, our listeners think of the gospel, we're being very clear. We don't mean the four spiritual laws, you know, or, you know, the Romans road, but it's far bigger than that. It's far more expansive. I mean, what I, what I appreciated about Keller, I discovered him about, well, I guess it's been almost 20 years ago now, but he exposed me to uh, how truncated my gospel was. And uh, I remember the the terms, uh, the cosmic implications of the gospel and him, broadening my view of that because I think growing up, well, not growing up. I mean, I got saved when I was in in grade 12 of high school, but being trained in evangelicalism. And for me, that was very dispensational at the beginning. uh, The gospel became just this four spiritual laws type of an understanding, but it's far bigger than that. It's far more expansive than that. And we can't just be fixated on the salvific gospel, as Mark McKnight would say, um, but it's the King Jesus gospel, which is much more broad and expansive and whose implications are far reaching. Um, so I, I, that's, that's the gospel you're talking about. I, am I yeah. understanding that correctly? Correctly. It is both, it's both a soteric gospel and a kingdom gospel. Yes. And if, if you fix your gaze on King Jesus, that will expand your gospel. And this is, this is the gift of the Christian Missionary Alliance and the gift of a couple of the Pentecostal tribes that would speak of a fourfold gospel. Mm-hmm. What's the alliance? Uh, are they the fourfold gospel and the panties are the four square? So the alliance yeah. is Jesus, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King, but he's actually oh, present we're gonna, King. We're going to send you your credentials, Bill. Oh, thank you. I appreciate Welcome that. To drive. Yeah. yeah. With well, Jesus at the center, though. So it's not a pneumocentric gospel, it's a Christ centered gospel. It's a Christ centered gospel. So four yeah. square is, of course, Savior, Healer, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and King. So it that expands if we understand that Jesus is strong and mighty to save. If we immerse ourselves in Colossians, then you have a cosmic Christ inviting you into His kingdom, mm. the, the Christ who holds the whole universe together. He's the yeah. glue and the clue of the universe. In Him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Yeah. So I think we need to wrestle with that. You know, it, it, it's not a quick and easy path if you've been weaned on a reductionist propositional clothesline gospel to move into the expansive space of a kingdom gospel. So, I mean, you're right, Scott McKnight throws shade at Billy Graham. The, the real the real nemesis of reductionism was actually Bill Bright. So I'd like to correct Scott. Yeah. But well, Billy Sunday as well. His Billy Sunday, he really seems to be throwing stones. Well, and stones should be thrown, you know, because there was a mashup of 
abstinence, the Rechabite movement, and the weird transactional promise, which is Pelagian, that you could basically guarantee how many converts per dollar. I mean, what in the world? And we're not far from that with some of yeah. our ROI conversations. Yeah, it's true. It's you true. Know, yeah. I understand philanthropists and entrepreneurs in the business sector want to see ROI, but there'll yeah. be no redemptive ROI if we don't announce the gospel in word and deed and, yeah. and communicate a big gospel and, and we're invested in holistic mission. You know, and I think practically, I mean, if we were to look at uh, uh, a large-scale example of what a, um, I, I guess, the implications of, of gospel-less preaching has done is to just to look at Christian Smith's studies on moralistic therapeutic deism, as he, you know, did longitudinal studies on young adults um, and the implications of um, them being in churches and not really understanding a full gospel, but a, a, a moralistic gospel. So, uh, you know, three steps to, a, you know, be good. God just wants you to essentially be good. And uh, a therapeutic gospel, you know, the 12 steps to a better life. And then a, a deism, but not true deism, but just a sense that God is, you know, distantly removed and he's not going to mess up your life. But if you have a problem, just call on me, he'll come fix it. But then he'll disappear and leave you alone, which is kind of an Oprah-fied gospel. It's a positive uh, understanding of of life, you know, the best version of yourself, essentially what the, what the culture is preaching. And so you have this whole generation of young people saying that's no different than the world. Why would I, where's the teeth in that? Where's the surrender in that? Why would I come to church when it's exactly the same as what I'm hearing in, in, in the culture? And so you dilute the gospel or the gospel disappears. And what do you have? You have young people running away when we think, oh man, if I soft pedal the gospel, if I just let them ease into it, if I just make it a little bit nicer, uh, they'll, they'll stick around. But all the research is saying that, well, that's, that's not true. It's, it's actually exactly the opposite. Yeah. And, and, and the young people, there's an exodus of young people, and those who remain are miserable, you know, because they've not had an authentic encounter with yeah. King Jesus, which is yeah. a spiritual travesty and tragedy. Yeah, and experiencing that abundant life of grace and transformation through the Holy Spirit and all, all that the gospel offers us, and a great and future hope. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, gospel deficit, um, how, how are we going to recover the gospel in our churches? Do you want to touch a bit more on that, or do you, do you, uh, do you want to move on? What do you think? Well, I, I think it's so important. You know, there is a gospel deficit in our churches. Uh, and, you know, we know before they were, we called them deconstructionists. We called them postmoderns. We, we know there's, there's an unhappiness with authoritative monological communication, but we do have yeah. preachers and teachers, and, and we are a community of word and spirit. And so really, I think we need to do remedial equipping and training Mm. So that our communicators actually are immersed in the gospel and can communicate the gospel. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a wrestle there, you know, you yeah. know, to get to the place where I remember as a youth evangelist preaching on David and Goliath. Every youth pastor, youth worker, youth evangelist would have that in their repertoire and, and exhorting young people, you you can fight Goliath, you can slay the Goliaths wrong. Wrong, you can't. You're mm -hmm. actually a loser. 
you're actually like Saul. You're not like David. And, and what you need is the son of David to slay the giant. So it, it, it requires retraining. Uh, you know, I think it was it was unfortunate in the church planting network. We we were so busy and we were growing, and we were deploying people uh, to plant churches who who were low on gospel articulation. Yeah, so what would the answer be there? Would it be a moratorium? Would yeah. it would it be a remedial path? And and of course, you know, I want to offer evangelistic preaching institutes, gospel preaching institutes. And, and so, hey, come to this great location and be equipped and mentored, be evaluated, be shredded and rebuilt. But it's going to take more than a week, right, of saying, come to the institute. It, you know, so it, it's, it's, we need some thought on this. We, maybe we need to huddle together and say, what can we do to uh, catalyze a new generation of gospel communicators? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think there are some, you know, biblical studies majors out there would, would be concerned with um, uh, Christ-centered preaching, that they might have some concerns with uh, the overreach in our uh, approach to exposition of the text, you know, and so the sense that for, for those who um, do Christ-centered preaching, uh, in a sense, what you're you're trying to do is to to see uh, Christ in the text. I mean, yeah. right? And, and and that's not like looking for where's Waldo. That's not the understanding of it. But sometimes people might feel like that. And, and I think we've been in churches where somebody preaches a text and attempts to find Jesus in the text, and there is a bit of overreach. Would, would you agree with that? And it's like, well... Yeah, hmm. there, there could be. I mean, if, if we're guilty of any overreach, that's the best, best one to go for. Because, yeah, you know, what, what I hear is... A lot of moralism, the power of do, 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 shoot, yeah. shoot. So the people of God are being shooted upon uh, rather than pointed to Jesus. And, of course, it's tricky. How do you find? I think you could find Jesus in the book of Esther, although God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. He's winked at. He's kind of winked at. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and so I, I think, yeah, you could go, okay, are, are you stretching it here? But what's the purpose? I mean, Luther said, didn't he, that the scriptures are the cradle in which we come to see Christ. Yeah. So we, we've got to think about that. Uh, other than that, you know, what's the Old Testament doing? Is it just narrative populated with principles and morals? And yeah. of course, we've seen some of that in children's ministry, where basically what we're doing, we're downloading virtues. The Bible's not a book of virtues. So somehow we've got to immerse ourselves in the story of God. And yeah. how, how does this passage, I think, you know, expositional preaching is good. You know, it gets you off your hobby horses. You've got to wrestle with the texts. Yeah. But we're not commissioned to get up and give a, a, a bundle of virtues to the people of God or searching lost souls. We're supposed to preach Christ and yeah. him crucified. So, I think we, we need to figure that one out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, um, I, I agree. Like it's, it's, it's probably unwise to try and find 
But I think there's two errors we can make. And number one is to try and find like a Christophany in every single passage. Like this is an appearance of Jesus in every passage in the text. Right, right. I don't think that's being faithful to it. Uh, second, um, uh, I, I think that just to pull out and, and just to say, I'm going to be just true to the original historical text, you know, so apply the grammatical historical method to the interpretation. And I'm just going to stick with that. And so if I'm in Leviticus, I'm just going to preach Leviticus and stick with that. Um, but then you, you, you're, you're looking at it with first century or whatever date it was written's eyes, but you're not seeing that this is actually embedded in a meta narrative. Yeah. Like every text is part of a meta narrative that eventually ends yeah. up with Jesus, right? So yeah. I think you can faithfully preach any text in scripture and end up with Jesus, either in the particulars within the text, you can see that glimpses of that, yeah. or you can make a beeline to the cross at the end through the meta narrative. You know, this yeah. isn't the end of the story. Guess what? You know, there's more to this or applying the general principle of grace and then ending up speaking about the cross. And, but the other error bill is, is that I think we, when we think of um, Christ, finding Christ in every text, for example, is that we, we tend to lean towards atonement and towards just that aspect of it, but we miss the fullness of the gospel, right? So we can get a real truncated view of the, you know, well, there's the cross, but let's not forget the resurrection. Let's not forget our, you know, glorification, great and future hope and the return of Christ. And I think you can find that in a lot of texts too. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, but yeah, let's keep Jesus in the center of our preaching. If, if we don't, if we, if we, so I mark sermons for, um, for, uh, one of our districts in their ordinations. And, uh, sometimes I will read entire sermons and there is no mention of Jesus like that. It's not in, not in the text at all. Um, and, and only God is spoken of in a very general sense. And so then I'm like, okay, well, let's pull out the rubric here and let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think it's yeah. important that the gospel has to be proclaimed. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, it's moralism. No, exactly right. You mentioned the word rubric, and the late David Nicholas created a rubric because he was so uh, agitated by church planters preaching. Mm. And, and we could critique his rubric as not being expansive enough, and he would say, has the bad news and good news of the gospel been communicated? But there's good news that precedes yeah. the bad news. The good news is creation. There's yeah. There's bad news, like you're more screwed up than you possibly can imagine by virtue of the fall. And then there's amazing news and fantastic news to follow. So I think to build a rubric and not not a hand the rubric, you know, willy-nilly to people, but to, to go on a journey of evaluation and say, am I really lifting up Jesus? We know. Yeah. We know when Jesus said this, he was talking singularly, but not exclusively about the cross. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Well, that that's to me, that's the goal. Are we yeah. lifting up Jesus? Are we exalting Jesus? And he, and he is savior, rescuer, but he's also healer, forgiver, great high priest. Yeah. He's also pioneer. He's also apostle. I mean, I, I think uh, you can't exhaust the riches of the fullness of Jesus, who mm. is also the big brother. You, yeah. you, you dreamed, you never dreamed you could have. He, he's, yeah. he's the one who's, you know, Proverbs is like a weird book, but in there it talks about one that sticketh closer than a brother. Now, who might that be? I think that, yeah. might, that might be Jesus of Nazareth. But sort of it gave it more thought. And then for the, the preachers who are listening, 
you know, when I was a pastor, I would do Saturday night prep. It's a bad idea. I think we need we we need to immerse ourselves in the text and not pull something out of a part of our anatomy or out the back mm. of our head or off the back of a you know napkin on a Saturday, yeah. but wrestle with the text to prayerfully consider how can where where do I as a broken sinner uh, encounter Jesus? How, you know, how do I need the grace of God in, in this text? And then, you know, preach to yourself for a while, linger in the presence of Jesus, mm. gaze on him, uh, and then say, okay, let's go on a journey and let's meet Jesus in this story, in this episode, in this text, in this book. Mm. Uh, yeah. That's good. A uh, couple of books, resources, if our listeners are, are wondering more about Christ-centered preaching. I mean, Tim Keller wrote a book. It's called Preaching. Um, yeah. I mean, there you'll find it. I think he's got a good appendix with some, some good examples. I happened upon a book this last year, uh, by Christopher Wright, W R I G H T. It's called how to preach and teach the old Testament for all it's worth. And fantastic couple of chapters about Christ centered preaching that mm -hmm. is so balanced. Like it's just so good and gives so many different practical examples of how you can do that. So, you know, I just want to recommend that to our listeners. We can put it in the show notes. But, but Bill, you had said earlier on, you talked about the office of an evangelist. Um, so let's, let's get into Ephesians chapter four, shall we? I mean, some would say that these are gifts rather than offices, but um, I mean, we, you can delineate a little bit between that, but I mean, what, for our listeners who know Ephesians four, it's the apest gifts are in there: apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Um, and the role they have is to equip the saints, not just to do the work, but to raise up uh, the saints so that uh, the Christ, the, the body of Christ, might reach its full maturity. So, evangelists, office or spiritual gift? Let's start there. Uh, both. There, there, <laughs> there, there, there's a couple. It's, it's, it's a, true, though. Yeah, it, it's true. It's a, it's a charism. Uh, you know, it, it's a manifestation of the grace of God by the Spirit of God. So some are graced and anointed to be evangelists. Yeah, Cle clearly, you know, just as it, you know, evangelist doesn't appear in First Corinthians twelve, doesn't appear in the First Peter four or the Romans 12, a mm -hmm. list of spiritual gifts. But it's a spiritual gift. So there's a supernatural capacity that an evangelist carries. Now, it might be dormant because of this contextual issue where it's my conviction we've got men and women who are sleepwalking. They're not mm. spiritually self-aware that yeah. Jesus has anointed and empowered them to be an evangelist. I had a friend who tried to recruit me to lead his ministry in the United States, and I said, What's the job description? He said there is none. Now I love that because I don't like straight jackets and uh, and and regulated job descriptions. I said so. No job spec. He said, "Yeah, be who Jesus made you to be," and and that mm. always makes me smile even years later. And I never took that you know vacuous, vague gig in the United States of America. But there's lots of men and women who don't know Jesus has made them to be. An evangelist. Now, first and foremost, you're a redeemed child of God, and yeah. by the spirit of adoption, who enables you to cry, "Abba, Father." But for you to walk in God's uh, assignment, you need to walk out that gift that He's deposited yeah. in, 
in you. So I think I think it's a gift, and you know, and and you're right. You know, there's a prophets prophesy, but they also activate prophecy. So mm-hmm. you know, I have a friend say, well, of course, evangelists are there just just to equip the people of God. No. They're there to bear and announce the good news. How beautiful on the mountains are those men and women who mm-hmm. bring good news. So there's announcing, there's a heraldic dimension. Not simply when I say heraldic or announcing, right away we think pulpit and platform and stage, yes and amen, but street corner, pub, Kathy, backyard, you know, there's there's a declarative dimension where there's authoritative communication of the mm-hmm. good news of Jesus by the power of the Spirit from an evangelist who has, by the Spirit's grace, a unique access into the hearts of unregenerate men and women. And so by the Spirit, through the announcing of the gospel, an evangelist can see faith and repentance activated in an unbeliever. At the same time, you're quite right. There's an equipping dimension where a teacher could do a great exposition on evangelism, but won't grab your heart the same way an evangelist will, because there's words that need to be part of our deployment vocabulary, like transmission, rotation. So an evangelist carries a supernatural love for the lost, burden for the lost. They're agitators for gospel centrality. And, mm. and, and they would be asking your question, where's Waldo? Where's Jesus uh, in the communication? Uh, and they're, you know, restless souls who want to see the people of God moved in sharing the good news. They're recruiters. They're God's yeah. sales force, not in a crass Salesforce way of our old evangelistic paradigm. So at our peril, we lose the evangelist. And I don't think a shepherd or a teacher should be given the assignment of figuring out community engagement, community outreach. Right. Get a cabal of evangelists in the mad scientist laboratory together to dream up <laughs> how, how the church can see the gospel spread like a virus into a community, how the people of God can be emboldened. So there is, there is equipping, which is a huge issue. We, yeah. need equipping, we need equipping evangelists. And probably equipping evangelists, because there's so few of them who are nimble enough to dance across different tribes. You know, yeah. you know, can you be an equipping evangelist amongst the Baptists, the Pentecostals, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Presbyterians? You know, if, if you've got emotional intelligence and ecclesial intelligence but frankly we need equipping evangelists so yeah. you're right you know the the telos of the gift according to ephesians 4 11 through 13 is to equip and empower the people of god for the work of god uh, but i think yeah. they need to be a player coach now player managers in the history of baseball have been yeah. fairly common over the years like the scoundrel pete rose like Leo DeRocher, player managers in the beautiful game association football are more rare, like Wayne Rooney at DC United or Graham Souness at Glasgow Rangers Football Club in the 1980s. But they're a rarity. But we do need the player coach of the evangelist who can equip. uh, and, And therefore, the evangelist needs to think more than 
the scope of their personal ministry. You know, this is yeah. the challenge for many evangelists who can be lone rangers and outliers, and that's often thrown at them uh, to disparage them. But there's an element of truth to that. So what are you doing yeah. to mentor others? Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I mean, uh, I think the it's been said that the, the majority of Christian leaders in churches are really down on the spectrum of the shepherd teacher. Um, so they've care for the flock. Uh, they, they teach the flock because I mean, in, in our theological institutions, that's pre- predominantly what we train them for. Um, but there's a real vacuum when it comes to the apostle prophet and evangelists in our churches and in leadership in our churches, like representation in our leadership in churches. And so, I mean, there's even been a movement in the last number of years come out called release the ape. So the APE part of the apest yeah. uh, that's happening. So uh, what, what do you think that is? I mean, why, why, why are evangelists not on our radar when it comes to local church leadership? I think they're threatening to that mm. um, modality. You know, the, the shepherd, you know, has uh, an impulse that leads to don't rock the boat because they want to see stable community. Yeah. The teachers are, are didactic. Um, and, and I think the evangelist can be like the rock in your shoe when you don't have a sock on. You know, they can, <laughs> they can, be, they can be an irritant. And, and I've thought about this, you know, like release the apes. And, and I know there's certain typologies that see the apes, apostles, prophets, evangelists as pioneers. Yeah. And the shepherd teachers as settlers. Now that reinforces shepherds and teachers in an unmissional life and an unmissional posture in an unmissional yeah. community. I've had to revise my thinking. I don't like that language mm-hmm. anymore because all five gifts are to participate in the mission of God. So it's not like the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists are the trailblazers and they're heading out into the wild, wild west, if I'm allowed to use that politically incorrect metaphor anymore. Mm -hmm. And the others are staying home building a settled community. We're all supposed to be on the open wagon on the Oregon Trail, led by our our Kagos, our apostle, our pioneer, Jesus. But, you know, if evangelists rock the boat, I mean, you think about it really, what we've, we're like zombies who've succumbed to right. business as usual. And so the prophets are disruptive voice. The apostles like, what about the expansion of the kingdom? And the evangelists about, what about Jesus and the lost? And meanwhile, those who are overseeing the enterprise are really settled into maintenance and business as usual. So when you overemphasize, as we have, the shepherds, you could end up with group therapy, a therapeutic culture, and then mm. we'd focus on me, my hearts, my needs. Oh, we need to be reconciled to each other fully before we're ever on mission. And the teachers, the church can become the gathering for a lecture in the lecture theater. Now, we, we need teaching. You know, Jesus said, you're my disciples if you continue in my word. So we need to be instructed in the word. Uh, and, and we need shepherds, but we need, to, we need to reclaim the apes in a way we don't even grasp. So there's, there's a reason why Alan Hirsch is still beacon off about apest. <laughs> you know, he's, he's beacon off. He's writing about books it. about it. Come on. <laughs> he's, he's writing books about it and, and remind us because I do think 
what you have in Ephesians is Paul's mission of ecclesiology. And if you want to be constituted around a biblical ecclesiology, then you've got to follow God's dream and God's design. And so Ephesians 4 points, I believe, to God's dream and God's design, that we need all five gifts. And mm. remember, I, I'm a pack rat, but I could never find these notes. Years ago, George Malone, who was a Plymouth Brethren leader, who got zapped by the Holy Spirit, charismatized, and I think ended up in the vineyard, did mm. a, an amazing lecture when I was in Youth for Christ in the old country. He basically gave everybody a handout. There was no fill in the blanks. Mm. But he unpacked APIS, but also looked at gift conflict. And so mm. the issue, there, there is gift conflict. You know, some apostolic leaders veer on abuse, because they're all about the mission and they leave casualties, corpses, and body bags in their wake. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, there's, there's a natural, probably, conflict between prophets and teachers. So mm. teachers are didactic, exegetical, and the prophets are, what's the Rima word of the Lord? What's the Spirit saying to the church? And that can mm. be disruptive because a prophet's favorite word in the Old Testament, which doesn't get uh, erased in the new covenant is shuv return so there's always this return to the holiness of god wake up to the yeah. justice of god hey sleepy people of god and then you which our concern is the evangelist you throw the evangelist into the mix the evangelist is the fisherman or the fisherwoman who takes the gospel dragon out into the wild ocean of the heathen and pulls in all the fish and really doesn't mm -hmm. hear how clean the fish are and just tosses the fish in and says to the shepherd, care for these. I'm going to find some more. So so I think there's, I yeah. think there's an inbuilt conflict. And, and really, Canadian leaders in particular, yeah. North American leaders mostly, are risk averse. So, you know, we need to see deep change more than we ever know or dream. We need to experience deep metanoia. We need to see our churches go on a journey of deep change and of course robert quinn says describes deep change as the hell of deep change so we what are we going to choose the hell of slow death or the hell of deep change and so rather than embracing deep change and the disruptive perilous path of a new day of gospel transformation and fruitfulness let's do business as usual and of course we have lapsed into a provider-client relationship between church leaders and church patrons, for the most part, you know, there there is a wrestle uh, going across the country around the making of disciples. Yeah, you know, but yeah. you put the evangelist in the mix; it, it's going to unsettle a status quo paradigm. Yeah, uh, and and call for greater fruitfulness. Is it okay that your baptismal tank is dry and your water bill? is low year after year after year. Yeah. Uh, the baptisms are few and exceptional. And then you can yeah. you can clothe yourself in some hyper-Calvinism that says, well, the Lord is not drawing many of the elect to himself in this season. You know, the fact is God reaches the lost for the most part in spite of the people of God, not hmm. because we're aligned with Jesus in the harvest fields and yeah. not because we're winsomely, boldly, invitationally proclaiming the gospel and calling people to encounter Jesus. So, so, so what, what can then, um, like I, I think about local church pastors who are listening here, how, how, 
how can they endorse or empower evangelists in their midst? That's a great question, you know, because that, that's part of the story. And, and the evangelist can be uncouth, you know, like especially the street evangelists. You don't need social finesse. So the pastor, yeah. I'm going to let them loose on the women's Christmas tea party. I'm not going to give them a microphone <laughs> on a Sunday. Yeah, you know, so, and there is this impulse which makes an evangelist an evangelist, an outlier, a maverick, a loose cannon. So mm-hmm. if you're a managerial leader, they're not your worst nightmare, but they, they can be they can be a pain. Uh, if you talk to evangelists, they would feel underappreciated and undervalued. So to to scan, prayerfully scan your faith community and ask the Holy Spirit, where are the evangelists in our midst? Now, if you have an event that's about evangelism, if you don't like the E word, just say good news. You know, so we're going to have a good news summit, a good news workshop. Yeah. Generally, the evangelists will migrate to that. You know, they'll just yeah. come to warm themselves by the fire, and they may not have the spiritual categories, but it's but it's to ask, what can you do to nurture and support and mentor them? And you may need others to come alongside. So I have the great joy as the National Director of Message Canada and partnering with Beulah Alliance Church, for example, mm. who had an amazing evangelist on staff, Art Reimer, followed yeah. by an amazing biggie evangelist evangelism champion called Angie LeFevre. Mm-hmm. And Angie passed away. So you've got the grief of a dearly loved leader who was besotted with Jesus and had Jesus conversations probably daily, not even weekly. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Part evangelism mojo. So, you know, wisely, pastorally, they thought, okay, we can't replace Angie, uh, but we can't replace her because she's a unicorn, like un- unicorn. Yeah. You can't replace Yeah, there's no one like Angie. Yeah. So now what they're looking at is what can we do to create a culture where we raise up evangelists. And of course, that will lead to a culture of evangelism. And so mm-hmm. we're partnering there and they're using advance as their strategy to uh, raise up evangelists and equip the people of God in evangelism. And, and I'm coming alongside their new pastor of outreach. And I did say to, yeah. to Drake, uh, my friend Drake, the exec pastor, what are you calling this guy? The pastor of outreach is an evangelist. So call him the evangelist of evangelism. Don't you believe in apest? And he goes, of course mm-hmm. we do. But our people don't understand it. But the point being, you, you might need some help. And the challenge is, Rob, that Peter Wagner said something that points unhelpful, but it kind of pointed to a reality. He said 10% of Bible-believing churches have the gift of evangelism. Well, there is no gift of evangelism. Language is important, and I'm not being pedantic. There is no gift of evangelism. We're all called to evangelism. The whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world, but there are evangelists, and he claimed 10%. Now, Rice Brooks, the founder of Every Nation, did his doctoral research on the gift in office of the evangelist, and I think he concluded 2% of a survey that's 10 or 15 years old now skewed towards the United States, 2%. I would say in Canada, probably between one half and 1% of a Bible-believing church, evangelical church. But God's got evangelists in heterodox churches, sad churches, deflated. They're they're everywhere, but maybe it's 1%. 
So if you've got a community, 400 people, 300 people, 200 people, call your church home, you might have a very small smattering. But then what do you do to encourage them? What do you do, you know, fund them to go to things that will ignite the flame, enfold them into some of your thinking and dreaming around community outreach and equipping, you know, what would it take to, and and get, get into a dialogue but yeah. not, not simply a utilitarian dialogue so that there are evangelistic outcomes, but to develop that man or woman as a Jesus-centered, spirit-led, spirit-empowered leader uh, and to encourage them. I think we, we need encouragement. You know, that's the oxygen of the human soul. Yeah. I mean, uh, Gerard Houllier, who was the uh, manager of Liverpool Football Club in Aston Villa Football Club passed away a couple of years ago, and I read with interest uh, the eulogies in, in I think the Guardian newspaper, which is free to read online. So a Scotsman likes that, and his assistant manager Phil Thompson, who uh, maybe played for Gerard Houllier in Liverpool, might have played for him, but certainly was his assistant manager, said something fascinating. As far as I know, Julio wasn't a believer, but he said he never ended a phone call or a conversation without saying, I love you, Phil. Hmm. And people need to know they're loved, like they're loved by you, they're loved by me. Some of my guy friends, I've started doing this. They're weirded out when I say, I love you, come in for a hug, I love you, and they get weirded out. Others will reciprocate at the same Bill, time. Bill, you've never done that to me. I'm, I'm, you're holding out, man. Okay, I can't. Um, we're in cyberspace. I can't hug you, but Rob, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm grateful. I receive it, brother. I love you back. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> so, so that came on the heels of a, a little epiphany that I had. My, my wife had a, mm. a, a big, important birthday, and I put together a book of blessing. So mm. I, I got a printer to create a book. I went through photocopies. She was out at a women's event. I had jazz music on and an IPA, and I'm going through all these photographs to find and I'm weeping because there's my beautiful wife of my youth and and you're mm. and I'm pausing and remembering memories so we had photos but I reached out to people across the span of our lives we were at Bible college with when we were in Youth for Christ say hey would you like to share how Morag impacted your life and and it blew her away now the point I'm making is a lot of this stuff goes on at a funeral you like my cousin about how uh, Morag was transformational in her continuing in a journey of faith. Or a gal who was my assistant uh, was so smitten by how Morag raised our kids. They never said mm. that at the time. So where am I going with all of this with these two anecdotes? We need to tell the evangelists and everybody else that they're dearly loved, not just mm. by God, but by you and me. I appreciate you. Yeah. And speak out encouragement validation Uh, and I think that's the issue because we've done these advanced summits and there's been prophetic activation the word of the Lord spoken over uh, sleepwalking evangelists who go wow God's called me to be an evangelist but others who are discouraged in that environment of worship and prayer and validation and affirmation uh, of the enterprise of evangelism and the gift and call of the evangelist they feel validated and and encouraged Rather than, I think for the most part, evangelists are like Harry Potter living under the stairs in Uncle Vernon's house. They're stultified 
they're 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 not allowed freedom of access to to move around and then there are an unwelcome presence at the dining room table and and that shouldn't be so it shouldn't yeah. be so that they're a gift you know the, the gift of the evangelist and what is the gift of the evangelist a man or a woman in your faith community they're a gift to you a gift to the church and a gift to a broken world yeah yeah, we. I mean, we we need to elevate the evangelists in our midst. And you've got actually, you just mentioned uh, this evangelist summit. I mean, you've got a big event coming up in February uh, in Calgary, the Advance Evangelists Summit. I wonder, what do you what do you tell us a little bit about that? Give us some details. What's going on at that event? Well, what what's going on at the event is layered. You know, the the language is intentional. Like I've not. Hmm retreated on their language, the Advanced Evangelists Summit, because we need to restore and reclaim and validate the evangelists. But it's not exclusively for evangelists. I need okay. to say that. But we want to create an oasis of refreshment and encouragement, equipping, empowering, impartation for the evangelist, mm. a space to encourage leaders who are called to do the work of an evangelist. And, and as we're thinking strategically about the story of God and the mission of God in Canada, uh, we need to see cultures of evangelism established. So you could have an alpha course, uh, kind of plug and play, but really not have a culture of evangelism. You could tolerate or empower evangelists on your periphery like a fractal edge nuisance or mission force. But what about creating a culture of evangelism? So, yeah. you know, one of the reasons we've got Alan Hirsch speaking and we've been in conversation with Alan and, and Rich Robinson is we want to create learning communities and offer that as a gift to leaders so they can journey together off the back of the instruction, encouragement, inspiration, impartation of, of the summit uh, and a journey, you know, so so I would encourage pastors to come with their teams because you, you and I, we go to conferences and we have an epiphany or a nugget and yeah. then if you're reporting back to people, it's three minutes in a conversation or if it's on a ministry agenda. So what happened when you went to Tallahassee or you went to the UK or the Philippines and for five minutes or seven, you tell a story, next item, the agenda. But what if leadership teams come, they get infected with evangelism mojo, and then they go on a journey of discovery, on a journey of metanoia. Uh, yeah. where we're not talking about behavioral modification as the pathway to a culture of evangelism, uh, but a journey of metanoia, prayer, receptivity of the Spirit to create a new day of evangelistic fruitfulness. So really what we, we want to do is we want to encourage the evangelist, support leaders called to do the work of the evangelist, and also embolden everyday Christians. Now, the fact that it's a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, does skew it towards vocational leaders and those yeah. of us who are full-time professional Christians paid to follow Jesus. But but leaders, uh, we're not the be-all and end-all. I think John Maxwell's wrong when he says everything stands or falls on leadership, full stop, everything full stop. But leadership's significant. Leadership carries yeah. weight. Whatever your governance, whatever your ecclesiology of your faith community, you, you do carry the currency of influence. So why not spend the cash of your leadership influence 
on catalyzing a culture of evangelism and come and learn from others. So there's there's going to be anointed monologues. There's going to be a pre-conference when we look at church renewal, church transformation. I did my doctoral research on missional renaissance. Kyle Harnett did his on the relationship between renewal and mission. Raphael Anzenberger is a French uh, missiologist and evangelist who's got some clear thinking around creating a culture of mission. And then Alan's going to be yeah. like the Jedi master in the house for the pre-conference. But we want to fan the flames of evangelism. And that's why we're calling it Fan the Flame. Yeah. Uh, it's in Calgary at Foothills Alliance Church from February 20th to the 22nd. And if you go to advancesummit.org, you can click on and scroll up and down that event yeah. page, and you'll you'll see Becky Pippert's joining us. Yeah, Becky Pippert's a legend. She, she's a total legend. I mean, I remember as an engineering student reading out of the Salt Shaker, and that was mm. that was one of the books that you were supposed to read as as a university student, but she's written Stay Salt. I think that's a three-year-old book. And, I mean, Tim Keller said, I think he thought it was the best book on evangelism that came out in the in a 15-year span or more. Mm. But it's a remarkable book, and she's a remarkable evangelist and equipper who thinks strategically about evangelism. So, I mean, I've got to know Becky as a friend. The last phone call was an hour long. I mean, she's just effervescent, full of gospel, full of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Last mm-hmm. year at the summit, we'd given her an assignment, and she said, Bella, I wonder if I could change my assignment. I said, sure, Becky, what are you thinking? She said, could I just preach on the cross? Mm. mind it's pastors and evangelists and i said of course you can i said probably if we could deploy you in such a fashion you could preach that message every day every week all across canada preach the cross Mm -hmm. so in one of the sessions uh she just took us by the hand and took us to the cross and and i didn't take a single note i've just bawling my eyes out so i mean Mm. she's a powerful anointed gospel communicator but she's uh, been activating people in personal evangelism, which is actually the most effective evangelistic expression. But she's got some clear thinking around strategies of evangelism. Mm. So, so, I mean, we're kind of happy if we've got a, an evangelism pulse. You know, yeah. But she's she's helping us think strategically, leadership team, pastor, senior leader, Whatever your name is, Grand Puba, cultural architect, do you have an evangelism strategy that does involve equipping and training your people? Um, and then we do this at, at our events. We'll also introduce people to the concept of the advanced group, which is right. a, a peer cohort, mates on a mission, sharpening each other in evangelism. And the goal is not to necessarily or inevitably engage in evangelism together but to encourage each other in our respective spheres of influence to be gospel torchbearers. And uh, if you go to advancedgroups.org or you go to messagecanada.org and you go to what we do, you can find about advanced groups and download free PDFs. Yeah, that, and that, that curriculum is incredible, like so well done. Um, yeah, I hope people tap into that but how do you guys use it well we we use it uh, to undergird a group 
that really meets these. This, nine years ago, a group met in Manchester of 12 evangelists uh, to ask each other the hard questions. How clear and pure is your gospel? How clear and pure and spirit dependent is your life? Uh, and accountability of life. Hmm and accountability of stewardship of gospel opportunity. So if you like, it's a three-legged stool. When that yeah. group met, they had no curriculum. They were led by Andy Hawthorne, a seasoned apostolic evangelist. And so I reckon Andy could walk into a room with little forethought and ignite a very fruitful discussion in time of sharpening prayer, accountability, transparency. But we use we, 18 months after that, there was a curriculum created just to undergird the group. Now, a seasoned leader would use the curriculum and content to dip into as a resource, but it doesn't need seasoned leadership. Someone who can simply facilitate interaction, and even if you need to follow the content slavishly because you don't have that leadership gift, it's proven very fruitful, Rob, and and people mm. being sharpened in the gospel. Tom Phillips who's still at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, said it's the most gospel-centered evangelism-equipping content he's ever seen. And really, what are you doing? You're immersing yourself in the gospel. You're looking at scripture. You're having discussion. You're praying for each other. You're staying in contact, and you're reinforcing each other in evangelistic intensity and intentionality. Mm. And, and what we're seeing remarkably from that one group in Manchester, England, about nine years ago, now there's 14,500, 15,000 advanced groups in 93 nations. And, and I was, over the last week, was just reading the hmm. Global Impact uh, report. So relational fruit from those 15,000 groups, 25,000 people made commitments to Christ wow. through the interpersonal wow engagement of those activated through an advanced group. Now I'm a preaching evangelist. I need to concede relational evangelism is actually more effective. Why? Because if you lead me to Christ, Rob, you are my discipler and I am your disciple. Yeah. We've got that relational connectivity. And so I can simply follow you life on life and, and you disciple me in, in the rhythms of, of everyday life. And what we've seen with those 25,000 professions of faith, about 80% or 78% of them enfolded into the life of the local church and in a disciple-making relationship. So, right. so it, it elevates and emboldens because the issue is every believer on the planet who's had a real encounter with Jesus knows they need to share that, but they need support, yeah. they need training, they need equipping, they need encouragement, they need reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's hard to build a multiplying discipleship movement out of just preaching evangelists you need yeah local people on mission on boots in the ground and this you know as they disciple those new believers they're immediately deploying them in evangelism right so there yeah. there you see the traction in the movement well bill i wondered if you could give a a final word of encouragement to our ministry leaders who who are listening and and maybe help to fan into the flame uh, the embers of witness that may have gone cold or, or lie dormant in our, in our churches? Sure. I mean, I mean what, what I would say, uh, I mean, well done uh, 
for walking it out, for running the race. We've had a uniquely challenging season. Now, none of us are on mission with Jesus in the Jos region of Nigeria, where there is persecution and execution of Christians for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Mm. But it's been tough. It's probably been the toughest season for any Canadian pastoral leader, ministry leader, navigating the uncertainties of the pandemic and coming out the other end, almost inevitably depleted. Yeah, yeah. You know, the exhaustion of leading through change and maybe candidly the exhaustion of doing things in our own strength and discovering actually, after all, that's a bankrupt enterprise. Mm -hmm. But what I would say to you first and foremost is that God is for you. He's, he's not against you. Uh, the goal of this podcast is to invite you into a new story and a new day, and that can only happen at the feet of Jesus. Hmm. So, you know, you can implement and strategize, but what's the invitation of Jesus? It's abide, 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 remain. And hmm. he says that 10 times. Why? Because if you're like me, as a leader, you're a numbskull. Uh, you learn your best lessons through the school of hard knocks or through the power of nauseating repetition. And there's never nauseating repetition from the mouth of Jesus. It's life-giving repetition and invitation that our first call is to follow Jesus and to spend ourselves in loving union and communion with him. He's the vine. He's the faithful and true life-giving vine, and we are the branches So I'd invite you, if you want to see a new day of evangelistic fruitfulness and to see the green shoots of a culture of evangelism pop up in your life and soul and in your leadership sphere and in your ministry and in your congregation, stick close to Jesus. Carve out Mm. space to hang out to him and it can be awkward, right? Because most of us, if we're honest, don't really get this abiding thing. And it can be like Mm -hmm. a flashback to when you stumbled into the school dance as a clumsy grade eight boy and figured out that you would embarrass yourself on the dance floor because you couldn't put your left foot, your right foot. And so there's a clumsy dance where we echo the words of the disciples and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught us to pray. So I would say the first order of business is to pursue the presence of God, and to become a God chaser and, mm. and to spend time lingering in the presence of Jesus and to listen to what he has to say. Lord, what's your agenda? What's your word? Allow the Spirit to renovate your heart, but also wait and listen to the Lord. What's his game plan? Don't cut and paste something from some church or ministry in the United States of America. You're body has a unique collective vocation and so our business as leaders is to spend more time with Jesus to listen to him and to say what is the spirit saying to the churches and listen and and it might take God's not silent I mean Jesus said man shall not live by bread alone but by a steady stream of words that proceed from the mouth of God Mm. so so we need to spend time lingering, not expediting sermon prep and and getting into the routine of unhurried time in the presence of God, pursuing the manifest presence of God 
and with our hearts full and our spiritual eyes open, confront the brutal facts. Look at your ecosystem, look at your ministry and see where there needs to be change. Yeah. And ask for supernatural courage to lead the change. But frankly, the change has to start in you and me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you've lost sight of the gospel, repent and reclaim the gospel. It's of first importance, as Paul told the gospel amnesiacs in, in 1 Corinthians. If mm-hmm. you've lost sight of your first love and you've succumbed to professionalization and the routinization of charisma, ask God to restore your heart and then take it a step from there. Find other brothers and sisters to journey together in a story of renewal and gospel transformation and mission because that's the way God set it up. God is community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so uh, seek out help. And, and if we can serve and support you, we've got a towel over our arm and a basin of water uh, nearby. It would be our joy to serve you. But I think mm. first order of business is go face-to-face with Jesus yeah, and, yeah. and, and see what he wants to do in your life. Uh, listen to him. If you've lost sight of your call, repent. I mean, God is faithful. He's the God yeah. of new beginnings. He's the God who says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Mm, good word. Abide, 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 remain. Yeah, mm-hmm. good. Well, Bill, thanks for being with us. I, I hope to get you back on the show here in the future and to hear what's going on. And uh, I hope to see you at the Evangelist uh, Summit in Calgary in, in February as well. And we'll put all the information on uh, in our show notes about how people can contact you. And uh, we'll put a link there for the Evangelist Summit as well. It's been Rich, my brother. Thanks so much. God bless. God bless. Thanks, Rob. Take care. You've been listening to the Church of the North podcast, a production of Briarcrest College and Seminary. For more information about the podcast, visit churchinthenorth.ca. To learn more about Briarcrest, visit briarcrest.ca. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard today, please share this episode with other ministry leaders. 